0: welcome to this lecture on algorithms. My name is Richard Harvey and I am one of the professors here at Gresham College. Um, I'm sponsored by the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists, who have uh, several missions. They're a charitable organisation based here in the City of London, from where we're beaming this lecture. Uh, but among those missions is to promote the uh, better understanding of IT. and Hence the motivation for today's uh, talk on algorithms, which are often thought of as the the sort of fundamental heart of uh, IT and computer science. So it's a strange word, isn't it, Uh, algorithms, and uh, uh, Muhammad al-Khwarizmi is uh, generally credited with the uh, word, a rather fascinating man. And... um, as usual with ancient scientists, there's a little bit of controversy about him in the sense that lots of people sort of claim him as their own. Um, I've certainly heard the former um, president of Uzbekistan, Mr. Karimov, uh, wax lyrical on, uh, on uh, Mohammed uh, al khwarizmi and uh, I think he did that because he uh, reputedly born in Uzbekistan. I have to say there's scant little evidence for this. Um, people think he might have been, uh, his name probably alludes to the city in which he was born, which was near Khiva in Uzbekistan, but um, if you live in Turkmenistan you might claim him as your own and he did lots of his work in, um, in Baghdad so he's, he's Persian, uh, some people think he was a Muslim, some people think he was Zoroastrian, uh, none of those things matter very much I think. He was a brainy guy. Uh, if you're interested, there's a very nice uh, documentary on him by uh, Jim Al-Khalili, which takes you through some of his life and times. Anyway, one thing he certainly did do was introduce the idea of um, what is now called Arabic numbering. And uh, I feel a little bit trepidatious about even calling it that, because what he did was he, take, he took Indian uh, uh, numbering, and uh, relabeled, rebadged it as it were, as Arabic numbering, and wrote it down. And he also introduced uh, methods for doing things um, in algebra. So he's now let me check this compendious book on calculation and other things. It's a wonderful name of a book, isn't it? Um, and he was he was chief at the House of Wisdom in. Baghdad. So that's the origin of the name uh, algorithm. It's an, it, it, clearly his name got Latinized to Mr. Algorithmi and then algorithm. If we uh, go for a sort of dictionary de- definition of algorithm you can see the, um, the history of the word here. So the first definition which is an Arabic system of numbering, uh, we don't use that anymore. It's a uh, highly archaic um, algorithm uh, is the alternative form of that. And then uh, definition two, that's what we're interested in, which is uh, a procedure or set of rules for doing something. And then uh, number three, which is a set of rules for doing something in medicine, I think barely counts as a separate definition at all. Uh, And number one is definitely um, quite archaic. I would say, however, that there is a close connection. And uh, if we get time in this lecture, I'll try and draw it out. There's a close connection between numbering things, particularly um, formulae and algebraic equations, and algorithms and systems for doing things. Um, right at the very early uh, sort of part of last century, um, there was a lot of interest in formal methods for solving uh, equations. And uh, those formal methods turn out to be quite uh, closely linked to some of the concepts that we're going to be looking at when we're looking at an algorithm and actually that leads us to a sort of definition of an algorithm that will that will do i don't want to spend my whole uh, lecture talking about definitions but very early on in the sort of hardy and littlewood sort of era when people were thinking about what does it mean to prove something and what does algebra do for us and all those sorts of things there was interest in formal methods, as we would call them now, for uh, doing things. And so here is a definition of what one might call, uh, what is called an effective method. And um, let's just have a quick look at it. So it says, if we have a finite number of exact finite instructions, then when a prob- applied to a problem in its class, our effective method always stops after a finite number of steps. It produces the correct answer, in principle can be done by any human without aids, except writing materials, and all you need to do is follow the instructions rigorously. So um, you might think of, back to your childhood, when you think about that, if you, were, if you were ever taught how to do long division or solve a set of linear equations or quadratic equations using a method, um, that's, that was what people had in mind when they were talking about effective methods and proof and there's this strong connection between proving things and uh, algorithms. And one thing I think we should sort of deal with right at the beginning is that algorithms are they're unambiguous, um, and unambiguous doesn't quite mean the same as deterministic. Uh, deterministic means if you run it twice, you'll always get the same uh, answer. Uh, you are allowed... Um, algorithms that are non-deterministic so if I gave you an example um, driving to Barnard's Inn from where we are uh, beaming this lecture which is in central London in the city of London from say Norwich which is where I live um, the route that you might take uh, particularly if you followed ways as I did here today um, will vary uh, time on time but the endpoints are the same so the algorithm for getting here might be a non-deterministic Uh, algorithm in that it varies depending on conditions and other inputs Uh, but it has essentially the same structure and that that is allowed within what we might call an algorithm. I would say that it's probably also worth saying that algorithms originally were designed for humans and I talked about um, you know the early prehistory but very early on what we meant by computers was a bank of Humans, human mathematicians, skilled mathematicians. And um, even quite late in the last century, computers were generally regarded uh, as as people. And they weren't sort of dumb automatons. They were often critical to the success of a particular uh, venture. So if you are a a film fan, then you might have been you might have watched Hidden Figures. And um, Hidden Figures actually is about the lives of some of these uh, computers, and they were working in the, the NASA program. Uh, typically, military and big prestige uh, pro- programs were the only programs that were basically rich enough to be able to afford computers. Obviously, teams of human computers are, are an expensive thing to have. And here's a little clip of, um, of uh, Hidden Figures. Maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. How's that? Maybe it's not new math at all. It could be old math. Something that looks at the problem numerically and not theoretically. Math is always dependable.
1: For you it is.
2: Euler's method.
1: Euler's method? Yes. That's ancient. But it works. It works numerically.
0: algorithms was really like that. Strings and pianos swelling in the background um, while Taraji P. Henson plays the life out of Catherine G. uh, Johnson who was uh, one of the early uh, mathematicians on the uh, on the uh, NASA program. Here's the original report that I found of her work dating from the 1960s and uh, the idea here was that there were these skilled mathematicians who were indeed um, going to uh, we're developing some of the algorithms that we use today, in fact. Um, films like Hidden Figures give rise to the idea that you need a lot of ingenuity to devise algorithms, and that's, that's probably true, but I don't want to... Emphasize, I mean, it's, it's possible to overemphasise that fact, uh, particularly if you're torturing computer science undergraduates with algorithms courses, and algorithms courses usually are regarded as a bit of a battleground, I have to say, for... Um, Uh, computer science undergraduates they're regarded as very difficult and obscure Uh, the truth of the matter is that a lot of problems turn out to be standard problems and so there there ought to be a book there isn't there ought to be a sort of there's a mental book if you like of standard algorithms and uh, one of the most annoying things that computer scientists will say to you and indeed algorithmic specialists is oh well this is a very well-known algorithm you know oh, well, that's, uh, that's just that problem. Ha, <laughs> ha, I solved that many years ago. And uh, in a way, that is, that's important, you know, because uh, without these standard algorithms, we, obviously we'd be have to reinventing uh, everything from scratch. Um, now, slightly disappointingly, they, they're not as modular as they are in electronics. In electronics, as I'm sure you know, a lot of components come in standard values, and the idea is that you plug them together and they... They make um, some standard hardware artifact. Uh, there's still quite a lot of um, customization, I'm afraid, in computer science, which uh, allows for error and all sorts of trouble. But the fact remains is that there are some standard algorithms. And some of the algorithms are so standard that they're known to be very bad. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, this is... Uh, President Obama before he was president, and one of the things he did before he was president was rock around the tech companies in, in California, I think. And uh, uh, in this case, he decided to go to a relatively new company called Google. Um, at this point, it was um, uh, run by a guy called Eric Schmidt, who is um, standing on the left, uh, sitting on the left here. And uh, what Eric decides to do is to ask one of the standard Google interview questions of uh, president obama to see um, see if he knows his stuff what is the most efficient way to sort a million 32-bit integers <laughs> well uh, i'm maybe I, I, i'm sorry maybe no no should, no that, no no i no, no. I, don't, I, I, don't
2: I think, think that's not a, that's I, not a I, I think uh, i think the uh, the bubble sort would be the wrong way to go <laughs> uh,
0: OK, so that's a double joke because um, everybody in computer science knows that the bubble sort is a terrible way to sort a million 32-bit bit integers. And clearly, Obama has either been prompted to say this or, or indeed, well, he was a professor, so maybe, maybe he listened in in the computer science coffee room and he knew that bubble sort was terrible. Uh, but let's just pick bubble sort. And as, as I pick it, I can hear you know, 100 computer scientists on the line screaming, do not talk about bubble sort. Um, There's a good reason for me... Uh, Please excuse me. There's a good reason for picking Bubble Sort. Um, So let me explain how it works. And um, the principle behind Bubble Sort is you get your list of numbers and you go through them pair-wise and you say, are you bigger than this one next to it? And if you are, we'll swap you. And um, I was going to do some fancy animation to explain this. And then I discovered that a beautiful group of people based at... Now, where were they? Yes... Uh, Serpentia University had created dances to explain the standard sorting algorithm. So, just let me play you a clip from uh, their YouTube channel which shows the uh, dance for bubble sort. The, uh, The things being sorted here are the players, and each one of them contains an integer that is stuck neatly, I think, to their front and back so you can see the value. And the idea of a sort is to put the small numbers over on the left and the large numbers over on the right. And you'll see above them, somebody has superimposed the array that contains these integers. So let's give it a go. So no need. Eight and seven are comparing. Seven needs to uh, switch. Okay, so you get the idea. You go through this thing pairwise and you swap the values. And on this slide, I've just shown these little pairwise swaps. So one of the questions that might arise is, how long does this algorithm take to compute? Well, length is quite easy to compare. You just sit there with a stopwatch. What we might be interested in, however, is how does this algorithm scale as the problem gets bigger? Okay, now that's a critical question. So what we might ask is, we say, if we had N items in a list, so n big N numbers, how many steps would it take to complete as a function of n? And we would call that the time complexity. It's usually the the step complexity, because time, of course, takes a different amount of time depending on the computer you're using. We might also also ask how much storage is required to do that, and that's called the space complexity. Now, generally speaking, at the moment, people are less interested in space complexity than time complexity. So if a computer scientist said talks about complexity usually they're talking about time complexity by default but if you want to catch them out say are you talking about space or time complexity that will that will show you to be uh, at least a bit more of a wizard than most people um, so the first thing that I hope is obvious from uh, this example is in this example it will depend on the data won't it so if those numbers were already in order zero one two three four five six seven eight nine 9 then obviously we go through the list saying, do we need to swap? No, do we need to swap? No, 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 no. No swaps, stop. That's how the algorithm works. So we went through the list n times. So the best case analysis in this case is n. Now, what about the worst case? Well, the worst case is when the the data are in reverse order. Well, that, that case, so the nine is over here, so that has to swap with everything and that moves one position And then we have to sweep through it again and again and again and again. So we have to do n sweeps through the data, and each one of those sweeps through the data takes n times. So that's n squared. So uh, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do a lot of these, but you you get the idea. The idea here is that this algorithm runs in n squared. So people would refer to that as order complexity or time complexity n squared. Uh, Sometimes you'd hear people just refer to that as... uh, a polynomial complexity because of the the N is an example of a polynomial. Okay, so that uh, notation, the so-called big O notation, can be used to show how the algorithm scales in time. So just to put some flesh on that, um, I got out my uh, little program and I wrote a program to take a 1,000 numbers. So I took, uh, uh, sorry, I took um, however many numbers are listed on the bottom here, so maybe 50, 100, 150, 200, and so on, I created a thousand versions of that and sorted them using my very primitive bubble sort. And you can see here that this graph goes up with N squared. So it's got the worst case. I don't know if you can also see that there aren't many Ns. So this, this always seems to happen when you look at complexity, which is the worst case. Well, that actually is most of the time. You know, so most of the time, this algorithm is um, N squared. There are better cases, but those better cases seem to arise infrequently. So this is a, what's called a Monte Carlo simulation where we, we try it and run it many, many times and then see what the worst case is in this case. So the nice thing about order complexity arguments is it sort of avoids um, computer top trumps, as it were, you know, where somebody says, well, if, if you ran it on this computer, it would be so much quicker. It just reduces it to a scaling. I mean, there are plenty of critical... Criticisms of order complexity, um, which I'll come back to, I mean, is mainly that it's a bit primitive. Um, now, as I said, um, I chose bubble sort because it's quite easy to explain how the order complexity works. You can sort of follow my argument. Nobody would use um, bubble sort um, for a real occasion. That's why President Obama said bubble sort would be the wrong way to go. Um, what do people use? Well, uh, merge sort is... Um, Quite popular. This is, um, I think I've got a video here from the same guys on showing merge sort. Now, the idea behind merge sort is to split the data into smaller bits, sort the small bits, and then merge the sublists into the big list. So here we've got a list of two, that's the ladies with four and two on their chest, and a list of three, that's the ladies with eight, six, and zero on their chest. And now having split it into lists, they're going to sort themselves by pairwise comparison. And it turns out doing that is a lot quicker. And you avoid this problem, or you you mediate this problem of, mediate, you reduce this business of, um, having to um, propagate the worst case uh, you know that number nine has to ripple all the way along the line so that's how merge sort works um, one of the popular ones at the moment is called tim sort so if you have an android phone or you're using something programmed in python or um, Octave or swift or rust then tim peter's tim sort is um, uh, the one for you recently found a small bug in it actually uh, it was not me I mean but a small bug was found and fixed in the um, in the standard library um, and it's most certainly not um, as bad as on um, order n you can get some of these things uh, n squared you can get these things considerably below n squared so there's a sort of um, what's the word a sort of hierarchy of complexity order n is marvelous you just have to go through the data Uh, Once, very few algorithms run in order order n. Um, Good algorithms, you know, you tend to think log n, n log n, polynomial. By the time you're into the bottom of this list, um, things are becoming, uh, can become quite expensive. Now, that informal understanding was put uh, in one sort of neat package by what is called the cobben edmonds thesis. And the cobben edmonds thesis basically says, There are two sorts of problems, really. There are nice problems, and those are the problems that can be solved in polynomial time, and they sit over here in a set, which I shall just call P. And then there are nasty problems, and the nasty problems sit over here. Now, cobham edmonds is, it's sort of become a bit misunderstood. I mean, what it's meant, it's talking about the scaling of the problem. How does it get worse as the problem gets bigger? So it completely ignores the computer you're using. It completely ignores the, the, any constants in the order. So a million N squared is thought to be good, even though uh, 2 to the N might in practice be better. Okay, it's all about the scaling. Uh, and of course, it ignores the size of the uh, input. But it's a, it's a, it's a very um, good rule of thumb that if something sits in P... Then it's an algorithm that you're not going to really have a lot of trouble with, and if it sits somewhere else, then there's a, there's a, you have anxieties. So that's Cobham-Edmonds, and you might say, well, what sits over here? You know, what sort of algorithms sit over here? Well, the first thing to say, and I'll try and remember to say this again because it's frequently misunderstood, is many, many practical algorithms do not sit in this easy, fast, and practical subset called P. They just don't, and we have to deal with them. Uh, it's a very common interview question, actually. Um, undergraduates have it sort of drummed into, him, that, into them that anything that isn't in P is a complete disaster and the end of the unknown universe. And um, so what you do is you set someone to interview a sort of problem that isn't, is known not to be in P, and you hope that they... or Well, you don't hope. If you're a sadist, you hope they crumble into a, a small uh, box in a corner and that sorts people out but lots of lots of things are not in p and i just thought i'd pick one so we can understand a bit more about it and the one i picked is tsp the traveling Salesperson uh, problem and it's a problem that's quite easy to explain um it the, it didn't used to be called tsp um it, it's been called a lot of things some people would call it a hamiltonian graph um, the idea is that you're a traveling salesperson And you're in your um, Ford Mondeo and you have to visit these various sites. And you want to visit them only once and you want to come back to where you started. That's the circular version of this which I'm going to talk about. And you want to absolutely go the minimum distance possible in order to do that tour or circuit of all of the points. So the rules are you've got to visit all the points, you're not allowed to visit them multiple times and you want it to be as short as possible. That's That's TSP. Well, the way computer scientists would always think about a problem like this is to use a graph. And um, just because we're at Gresham College, I I feel we can't use... You know, people often pick standard examples for this, you know, the boring ones to do with Amazon deliveries, which are, you know, highly relevant and so on. Um, I've seen a very entertaining example based upon um, Abraham Lincoln's circuit when he was a circuit judge in... um, in uh, bits of bits of the u s, uh, which is highly appropriate, but we 're at Gresham College, and a former Gresham professor was Sir Christopher Wren. so I think we should pick a Rhenish example, which is what i 've picked here so i 've picked thirteen um, churches, the thirteen churches that are in the city of London and are untouched from when the days uh, of, of, of Wren. So Wren was an you know, architect based in the City of London. He's a former Gresham professor, and he had a real good go at um, a, a great number of churches in uh, the city, but many of them got remodelled either by the planners or by the Luftwaffe. So here's a set of uh, 13 churches, and the, the closest are... Let me just check this, yes. The closest are a staggering 104 metres apart... And um, the farthest are 2.9 kilometres apart, which is pretty much the width of the uh, uh, city, the diagonal along the city. So um, here's Sir Christopher, and he's sitting in uh, St Paul's Cathedral, which is the most famous of his churches, and he's saying, well, I wonder what the best walk is around my churches, and I'm only going to visit one at a time. Well, that's a reasonable uh, sort of... um, thing to ask now those of you who are f- familiar with the city of london may indeed look at that map as i looked at it um this afternoon when preparing my lecture and think hang on those are all in the wrong place and um they are in the wrong place because i realized i mixed up latitude and longitude sorry about that so uh, don't get obsessed about where these are what i can tell you is that i did code because i coded this myself there's always a Disastrous admission, isn't it? Um, I coded the distance between them as the Google Maps walking distance between the churches. And being a sort of cautious sort of chap and knowing London, I took the average of going to and going from, because if you walk to places in London, there are usually different routes to get to places and different routes to get from places. OK, so that's the basis of uh, my description. Right, so let's think about this problem. Here's, uh, so, Sir Christopher's starting at St Paul's. Let's just think about what we would call a brute force search. So what he would do, he's at the 13th church, St. Paul's, and he says, well, I could go to either any one of these 12 churches. There are 12 possibilities to go out that way. And I'll I'll get out my little pedometer and measure the number, the distance to all of those 12. And then from each one of those 12, I could go to 11. And from each one of those 11, I could go to 10 and so on. Right, so the number of possibilities... I think I wrote it down on this slide, yes, is 12 times 11 times 10 times blah, 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 blah. about uh, 500 million possibilities. Okay, well, um, you could halve that if you like, because um, I'm counting here um, sort of clockwise tours as different from anti-clockwise. So if we said we don't mind whether we go clockwise or anti-clockwise, then it's half that. But it's still quite a lot, and it's too many for Sir Christopher with his, um, you know, rather primitive computing power to to manage but we can manage it you know um half a million it's um not an amazingly difficult problem so um we could just crack on and uh find ourselves some sort of optimal uh route that would take us around these uh churches and this is i hope it's the optimal route forgive me if it isn't um but my explanation survives whether it is the optimal route or not and I found it to be about 4.4 kilometers so it's a nice nice uh nice Sunday afternoon stroll around the city of London looking at the uh the Wren churches that are still surviving okay so far so good uh, I didn't tell you how I solved that but just for the sake of argument let's assume I did it by brute force searching I mean I didn't but I mean, let's just assume I did okay but Wren produced He did far more churches than that, you know, so um, there are 52 in uh, London at the moment, and so let's assume we took, uh, what do I'm assuming here, let's assume I took around a millisecond to search through, uh, solve the problem with 13 churches, how long is it going to take me to solve the 52 church problem? Well, um, 52 churches, that will be 52 times 51 times 50, and I'm... Putting a little explanation mark next to it because that's the symbol for factorial, which is the, uh, which is the, uh, 52 times 51 times so on, and 12 factorial. Um, okay. Rough stuff. This um, that ends up at around five times ten to the forty-eight years, using the same computer. So you might say, well, milliseconds, ridiculously slow. I mean, I could build some sort of super, super hypercomputer, you know, sort of, let's take that down to, a, don't know, a femtosecond or a attosecond or whatever, you know, some tiny, tiny thing. It doesn't help very much, does it? It's still hideously impractical. And this is one of the problems with those non-polynomial problems. They go from being... Uh, I mean, it, it seems completely unreasonable, doesn't it, that what was a you know, a small little problem, like going around 13 problems, goes from manageable on my little PC to being hideously unmanageable ever on any PC. OK, so what could we do? Well, um, one method is to use a sort of approximate algorithm, and this is very common when facing these problems. Uh, you know, very, very tricky, challenging, uh, com- complex problems like, like TSP. Uh, so here's one of the simplest I could uh, think of. Um, uh, this is the nearest neighbor algorithm. And um, what you do with nearest neighbor is you're standing at some pools, you look around to the one that you think is closest, you move to that, and then you move to the next nearest neighbor that you haven't visited already. And um, if you do that, I end up with about a five-kilometer route. Um, and there it is, comparing it to the optimum route. Well, I could start anywhere and try that, and it turns out that I think the worst case is if I start at St. James's, and that gives me about 5.3 kilometers. So that's a... And the best uh, version is starting at St. Peter's, which gets down to 4.7 Kilometers. now if you think about the optimal which I think was 4.4 kilometers these are generating what we would call bounds okay and bounds are quite useful in mathematics and uh, computer science they're a sort of um, indication of the worst what's the worst that could happen so in this case I'm saying that the length if the length of a nearest neighbor solution I'm calling LNL LNN and the optimum solution is L star, then the uh, optimum is bound here by the nearest neighbour. And this is an upper bound. An upper bound is what's the worst that can happen. And we also have uh, lower bounds, uh, can't-do-better-than sort of bounds. And both of those concepts come out quite a lot in algorithms. What happens is uh, mathematicians and complexity theorists will simplify the problem in a way that allows them to work out what's the best you could do and what's the worst you can do and when you've got to deal with algorithms that things that you can't compute that's incredibly helpful because that tells you you say well i I know i haven't got the optimum but i know i'm within this distance of it and uh, i can sort of illustrate that for that for us graphically for um tsp so this is a sort of graphical illustration of what's happening with tsp and on the bottom here on the x-axis I've got computation steps so as we move across to the right things are taking longer and longer and longer and longer and probably should go off to something horrendously infinite so brute force is indicated uh, right on the the far right here that was what I was talking about at the beginning of this little segment and then on the top left I've got these very fast um, uh, algorithms which are not very optimal and they're the nearest neighbor algorithm so that's where I just pick the nearest place and move to it and um, now so far I don't actually know what the optimum is so if in reality you know I can't run if I can't run the brute force algorithm I don't know what the optimum is so I'm in a pretty tricky position I've got these nearest neighbor algorithms which I know are bad but I don't know how bad they are well usually with a problem like this you've got a more sort of complex set of algorithms to have a go at Um, so let me just put some of them on so there is in fact it turns out an exact algorithm it's the uh, held carp algorithm Uh, it still has rather nasty complexity n squared two to the n so that's not polynomial it's a bad algorithm in that sense but it does give you the exact answer so if you've got a small toy problem you might be able to use held carp to get the answer and in fact that's what I did use with my um with my small problem I actually use well I think I used it to be perfectly honest I used um, Google OR tools which are a public domain library that solve uh, routing problems you can download it and try it yourself and it uses a mixture of exact algorithms and approximate algorithms depending on uh, how complex uh, the problem is I don't remember it telling me which algorithm it used which was annoying um, but it, it didn't um, so what about approximate algorithms Well, the most famous uh, one is the Christofides algorithm, recently renamed, actually, the Christofides-Serdikoff algorithm uh, because uh, somebody else seemed to have uh, discovered it at the same time. And um, that algorithm doesn't give the optimum, but it gives it close enough. So the Christofides algorithm is bound from above by one and a half times the optimum. So you can see where we're going with this, I'm sure, which is, well, the good thing about Christofides algorithm is it's got good enough complexity that we can use it on real problems you know big many many hundreds of nodes and so on that's great Um, and it gives an answer that we know isn't worse than one and a half times the optimum so you can look at the answer you've got and think well I can tell you the optimum isn't better than uh, the scaling of the answer I've just got so that's quite handy And that happens quite a lot in the the space of, in the world of algorithms. So we can have approximate algorithms, preferably with known approximateness, or we can have exact algorithms which might be impossible to compute. Um, And the strange thing about travelling salesperson problem really is the dates. So in computer science, you know, everything changes all the time. What's astonishing to me about this is that Held-Carp algorithm dates from 1962. I mean, it's prehistoric, um, and no one's found a better one uh, since then. And um, the um, approximate algorithm, uh, Christofides, it dates from 1976, you know I mean? We were, we were all wearing flared trousers in 1976 and didn't have mobile phones, it's amazing. Now, that was true, actually, um, all of that was true uh, when I started writing this lecture um, about a month ago, and during this lecture it became not true. So there's recently been a new um, algorithm uh, published by Carlin, Klein and Karam, and they have just snuck in under the Christofides algorithm. It's a modification of the Christofides algorithm. So the question you're asking me, I, haven't, I have to admit I didn't check the complexity, but I... I The paper looks pretty similar to Christophides, a modification to Christophides. So I suspect the complexity is is very similar. Write it in the comments if you know what it is, because somebody might know. But it is slightly better in terms of its approximation. Now then, how much better is it, you're asking me? You're craving to know the answer, aren't you? It is that distance between 3L star over 2 and that little dot is... 10 to the minus 36 (laughs) so it's ludicrously close Um, nevertheless we're all very excited about it because it does introduce a new uh approach and um, maybe it's going to crack open to give something um, a little bit more exciting than a 10 to the minus 36 improvement so these algorithms which which are important can be quite resistant so i've introduced um Standard algorithms there, and I've talked about a couple um, standard algorithms and sorting which are tractable, and an intractable algorithm which is uh, TSP. There are many intractable algorithms. I've just picked one. I haven't really talked about what goes inside an algorithm, and that's partly because I'm going to be talking about programming in a later lecture, and in there I shall talk about some of the standard control structures. Um, One that you might be familiar with, I suspect, is the idea of iteration. Computers do this thing, and they do it again, and again, and again. That's called iteration. One that we've come across already, which I should have mentioned when we came across it, was the idea of recursion. And recursion is a structure where the algorithm essentially calls itself with different parameters. And we met that already. When I talked about factorial, which was this exclamation mark symbol, one way of defining factorial n is to define it in terms of factorial n minus 1. So you could define... Factorial n as n times factorial n minus one, and so on. Rather beautiful uh, definition. One word of warning: early on in the literature, the word recursion, which now has this technical meaning about calling itself, um, there are lots of computer science recursion jokes. By the way, if you want to look them up, uh, recursion uh, at some point in the literature meant just doing things in a computery way. Okay, so um if you go back to the sort of 1920s and 30s recursion me- was used to mean something differently i haven't talked about how we represent algorithms um I-, I, mean, I have studiously avoided it actually but let's quickly talk about that it's a bit of a mess to be perfectly honest i mean in the early days people used a flowchart, and i've shown one on the right hand side the one on the right hand side lots of people are credited with flowcharts. um Frank and Lillian Gilbreth were, developed probably the flowchart. They used it for modelling uh, processes of human activity, you know, um, time and motion studies uh, from the 1920s, 1921. And then some people say John von Neumann, the great computer scientist who, who invented everything, you know, um, did flowcharts. I mean, I had a look at his flowcharts, and I think really they're much closer to what we would call now a signal flow graph. So I think I'm going to just rule him out of court Uh, for that claim, Uh, not because he's not a most brilliant man. As I said, he invented almost everything else. Um, The first example of a flowchart I can find that looks like a modern flowchart is um, this example here. This is taken from the papers of Grace uh, Hopper. Grace Hopper was a computer pioneer um, and um, venerated in the US, quite rightly. And in her papers is this flowchart, and it's by a programmer called Marguerite, Marjorie K. League, um, who's an interesting uh, person. This is a um, flowchart for comparing three numbers. And um, Marjorie League also worked on the first um, program to try and predict American uh, elections. She's got quite a distinguished um, programming programming structure. Flowcharts have gone out of fashion. Uh, I think there isn't a good explanation why they've gone out of fashion, but here's my theory my theory is that they were jolly difficult to draw on early computers when we had it for early computers graphical stuff was really difficult to do so um, it was a real hassle to do flowcharts and we all had these little bits of plastic (laughs) if you were a programmer you had these sort of little plastic stencils which had all the flowchart symbols and we would spend ages drawing them, and we didn't like it so people moved away from flowcharts which personally I regret because they were well defined there's a standard list uh, standard list of symbols and uh, they sort of crossed uh, languages and cultures very well and now we've moved to what's called pseudocode or sometimes structured english algorithms and it's just a list of do this do that i'm not very keen on um pseudocode myself although we all use it um, because it's not defined i mean there isn't an international standard of pseudocode well there is a sort of structured structured english standard but it's a bit of a muddle and no one uses it so um there's a sort of need i think to be more formal about algorithms in that definition Now, that is not to say that we're not formal about algorithms in uh, how they connect to computer science and the, the sort of the towering uh, a genius really of doing that was the guy on the right Alan Turing. Uh, Alan Turing was a student of uh, Alonzo Church on the left. Alonzo Church developed something called lambda calculus which is an algebraic way of representing algebra about algebra and so it's very useful for algorithms and functions because it's an algebra that describes functions and what uh, Turing did in this paper um, was he, he he wasn't interested in computers Specifically, specifically, actually, what he wanted to do was um, solve this um, decision problem, as it's called, the Entscheidungsproblem. And the Entscheidungsproblem is a problem in, in mathematics, which is given a formula, can you show that it is derivable from the axioms? Okay, sounds easy, doesn't it? But, you know, so, it's a, in principle, can you do that? So, if I define a set of axioms and an algebra that works on those axioms, can I show, with a formula that's valid formula, can I show how to derive it from the axioms? And the answer, by the way, turns out to be a very surprising one, which is, no, you can't. And um, mathematics went into a great big crisis for a bit when they discovered this, this negative answer to Hilbert's problem. And We've since all forgotten about it for a bit. But that's what Turing was interested in. And in order to do that, he developed a general model of a computer called a Turing machine, or rather a universal Turing machine, as we would call it now. So the surprising fact is he did all this in 1936, which is a sort of staggering uh, thought because this was long before uh, computers were a practicality. Well, the best way to explain a Turing machine really is people usually at this stage get out sort of arbitrary pencils and paper and start drawing it. But some dude on YouTube has built one. Um, so um, I'm sorry I've taken off the audio track because it's a little bit... Um, takes a while to explain it but I think you can get the idea here and what we've got here is a tape and on the tape the machine is allowed to write either a one or a zero it's allowed to rub off the uh, uh, digit it, it's a light and it's allowed to move the tape to the left to the right or stay where it is so it's a very very simple sort of model for a Turing machine and um, this one is um, programmable by an SD card you put an SD card in the say in the side, and it follows a set of programmes. There are various models for programming these things. Um, there's a good model thought of by Tibor Rado, where you have sort of idea cards, which you programme, and they're popular when you're teaching undergraduates about these things. In a universal Turing machine, the programme is also on the tape. So you can programme can modify itself, and you can do all sorts of things. The idea is that all... Um, algorithms that you could think of can be simulated by a Turing machine and that idea that for every algorithm there is an equivalent Turing machine and for every Turing machine there is an equivalent algorithm is known as the Church-Turing thesis and it's probably the basis of modern understanding of theoretical computer science okay so that's one way of getting precise about algorithms which is you know that you, this connection with Turing machines and Turing machines are very easy to understand and define this has no practical consequences whatsoever, I think. I mean, nobody apart from guys who are like me who are interested in Turing machines and, and undergraduates are made to programme Turing machines. They're not practical computers. They're sort of thought computers that allow you to think about what a, any computer does. And any computer can be modelled as a Turing machine. So the other thing you can do to formalise things is, is to formalise really the problem a bit. And computer scientists have been quite good at this. So they call them classes of problems. And the one that devotes people, devotes a lot of attention, gets a lot of attention, is called a decision problem. A decision problem is something that has a yes-no answer. So you might think of, you know, well, not everything is a decision problem. Lots of things can be converted to decision problems. So Z equals X plus Y could become... Uh, does Z equal X plus Y? Yes or no? That's a conversion of a decision problem. So the TSP becomes... Is there a circuit shorter than some... Um, number for example that's a a yes no question so both of those when you put both of those together then you can put some precision around the class of the problem and the, the thing that is actually involved in solving the problem and that brings us back to that lovely set p that we were talking about okay so it's the set of decision problems that can be solved by a deterministic turing machine in polynomial time and I didn't define that earlier on but that's that's what it is and lots of practical problems fall into that set which is great news for us you know so um, sorting we talked about earlier um, linear programming uh, LZW comp- ZIP the LZW compression um, the discrete Fourier transform which is used in your mobile phone and all sorts of other things in your television your your high definition television computes the discrete Fourier transform millions and millions of times every every second so it better be efficient okay so that's the set of p now then what about this set np well np is not the set of decision problems in polynomial time it's the set of verification of solution in polynomial time so let me give you it's a bit complicated to explain np but here's a simple way of doing it this is a sudoku grid in a Sudoku grid. Sudoku is a a game, I think, of Japanese origin, and the idea is to fill in this grid such that every uh, line on the grid contains the digits 1 to 9 and every column on the grid contains the digits number 9 and every uh, subgrid, 3x3 grid, also contains the digits number 9 with no repeats. So let's imagine I filled in that grid. So I asked you to check it well, you could check it pretty easily, right? So you go, do I see digits 1 to 9? Yes. Are there any repeats? No. Right, that line's correct. OK, so you could actually check it, and you, I think you could see you could check it in polynomial time because if the grid was n by n, you have to go n along and n down here, and then we've got to deal with these uh, subgrids, but it's, it's going to be polynomial. Now then, what about creating a solution for that grid? Ha, ah, ha. Well, if you've ever done Sudoku, that's a hell of a lot more difficult, okay? This is the nub of the issue. Um, This is actually an interesting Sudoku grid, if you're interested in Sudoku grids. This is a minimal Sudoku grid. A minimal Sudoku grid is one where, if I removed one of these numbers, which are called clues, then the solution becomes unambiguous. And this is the largest number of clues known at the moment in a minimal Sudoku grid. It's a 40-clue one, so... If you're um, doing something later and don't know what to do, just tune into the lecture and solve this Sudoku grid. and keep you occupied. So solving Sudoku is a hard problem. Verifying it is not trivial, but it's it's not so bad. And this leads us to one of the sort of greatest known questions of modern computer science. Um, So in this set P, we've got some of these algorithms that I've talked about already, Um, sorting, FFTs, multiplication all sorts of things that you might do Uh, and then in a set NP there are other things that we know we can verify the solution in polynomial time so um, circuit design problem routing for example so the travelling salesperson problem that I was just talking about that's in NP we know we can verify a solution in that time job scheduling Uh, finding primes well actually finding primes was in NP and then it was in, became in P. There was a team of people at um, uh, one of the IITs in India, um, Kanpur, I think, yes, um, solved that problem. They wrote this wonderful paper called Primes is in P in 2006, which showed that finding primes wasn't as uh, tricky as we thought it was. Now, I haven't said, but I hope it's kind of obvious, that if something uh, is in P, then it's also in MP. So, one little observation before I get to the nub of that problem is that these problems out here, these uh, tricky problems, that are known to be in NP, but which we don't seem to have a P solution for, um, I should, yes, let's include protein folding in this and public key cryptography and Sudoku, which I was just talking about. Sudoku was a recent discovery known to be... It wasn't known to be NP until fairly recently. Um, you can actually very often reduce the essence of the problem to um, themselves. So problems where you can do that, they're called MP complete problems. Now, this reducibility is a little bit technical. You're allowed to um, play some games and say, well... But essentially, it's saying this problem over here is isomorphic to this problem here. So... Um, you know, solving Sudoku problems is not a million miles away from solving protein problem, protein folding. So, is P equal to NP is the question. Well, most theorists think it probably is not. Okay, they suspect strongly that P is not equal to NP, and... Uh, the clay mathematics institute has a million dollars riding on the proof if you would like to have a go at it ladies and gentlemen you would be uh, somewhat heroic if you were able to prove one way or the other um it turns out to be quite um important because as i've already alluded to and i think i'm just going to skip a section because we're running out of time it leads to a sort of asymmetry which can be quite handy um so for example um we use this encoding if i can encode in a way that just means you have to verify one of these solutions then obviously you can decode fairly quickly but if an eavesdropper has to solve a much more complex problem then we've added an order of complexity on the eavesdropper which is what we'd always want to do and that's how public key cryptography works and if p equals mp then there are a few public key cryptography systems that will fail overnight, possibly. Depends how the proof is constructed for P equals MP. There are people, well, there are all sorts of people. There are people who think P equals MP, if it's proven the whole world, the universe will end. Um, there are other people who like me who, who say rather casually, well, it depends how the proof works because it is possible probably to have an MP equals P proof um, that might uh, give you the right answer without actually revealing how to do it. Um, That said, it has been quite resistant to solve. If you'll forgive me, I just want to quickly uh, skim over how you might use this in public key cryptography, knowing later on in the series I have a a lecture that will cover this anyway. Um, This asymmetry is quite handy, and I think I'll skip over this, but what I will do is just play you a little summary of the problem. There's a beautiful, I have to say, The interweb is not overly specified with beautiful explanations of algorithmic complexity. And it has a reputation amongst undergraduates as being fiendishly complicated subject and badly explained. And it doesn't help that the notation is very tricky and, you know, that's all very disappointing. Um, But there is a notable exception. And um, that's provided by a a little YouTube channel, which I'll play a clip of in a moment. Just a couple of observations though. The first thing is that there is a proof already showing that the proof of NP equals P is itself an NP problem, so likely to be very tricky to um, deal, deal with. But let me just summarize briefly with this little clip which brings it all together quite nicely.
2: So why has it been so hard to prove P versus NP one way or the other? Well, fun fact, proving things is an NP problem. The P vs. NP question itself is one of these problems, so yeah, this might be difficult. Or not. We don't know. As the field of computational complexity has developed, we've discovered a lot of complexity. The P vs. NP question turns out to be just the main attraction in a huge and complicated zoo of complexity classes. Beyond NP, there are even harder classes of problems, like EXP, the class of problems including figuring out the best move in chess that takes exponential time to even check. This whole upper area of problems that are at least as hard as NP-complete is called NP-hard. There's also co-NP, the class of problems where instead of being easy to check right answers, it's easy to exclude wrong answers, which may or may not be the same as NP. And then there's P-space, the class of problems that can be solved given unlimited time, but using only a polynomial amount of space for memory. There are also problems that can be solved probabilistically in polynomial time. That class is called BPP, and it may or may not actually be the same as P, And then there's a quantum computing analogue of BPP called BQP. All over the place in here are complicated little classes that would take a lot of explaining. And actually some of these turn out to be infinite hierarchies of problems that are slightly more difficult from the ones beneath them. We know there's an exponential hierarchy, and there's probably a polynomial hierarchy. And out beyond all of this are problems that are just not solvable by any computer in any amount of time or space. To me, the amazing thing about this whole complexity zoo is that we're talking literally about what can be computed in a given amount of space and time. We're not just looking at the nature of computation here, we're looking at the nature of space and time themselves. This mess of computational complexity classes I think ultimately has implications for physics and biology and for our basic understanding of everything. As an example of those implications, here's how Scott Aronson, a complexity researcher at MIT, explained his intuition about P versus NP. If P were equal to NP, then the world would be a profoundly different place than we usually assume it to be. There would be no special value in creative leaps, No fundamental gap between solving a problem and recognizing the solution once it's found. Everyone who could appreciate a symphony would be Mozart. Everyone who could follow a step-by-step argument would be Gauss. The world around us, the nature of living things and ideas, of art and genius, is molded around the deep structure of computation. In a very real way, something connected to P versus NP shows up in the struggles of scientists and artists. Chopin once said, Simplicity is the final achievement. After one has played a vast quantity of notes and more notes, it is simplicity that emerges as the crowning reward of art. And Jack Kerouac put it like this, One day I will find the right words, and they will be simple.
0: What a beautiful video. It's actually much longer than the clip I've been able to play you, I'm afraid. Uh, And it stands out as one of the uh, better explanations of this uh, knotty problem. Scott Aronson, by the way, who is a complexity theorist, His last count was that there were 416 different complexity classes. My own view is um, that's too many, and um, surely, uh, surely we can do better than that. Uh, So that's the first lecture in this series, and in the next lectures in this series, we're going to segue to look at data structures and programs and computers and network, and then security, which I touched on today, but we'll pick up in the final lecture. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Harvey. Um, Fascinating lecture. I've got a couple of questions in from the audience. Um, The first question is, are there problems that are fundamentally unsolvable by algorithms?
0: Yeah, there are. (laughs) There are. And I should have talked about them. Um, One of the problems that fascinated Turing was called the halting problem. And the halting problem is, uh, given a a Turing machine and a programme, so in other words, an algorithm... Can we decide if it's going to stop? And that sounds a very deceptively easy problem, doesn't it? You think, well, surely we can decide that. Um, Can we decide it formally? And the the answer appears to be no. You you can't. It's one of the problems that is um, known to be unknown. So science doesn't often... People often think about science as turning up um, solutions that are uh, known, and hence, because we know they're known, we can solve them. They equate solving them with, with knowing that. And unsolvable problems. Um, it's not so, people aren't so used, I think, to pro, to problems that are known to be insoluble.
1: Second question. Um, do racist algorithms exist? And if so, what can be done to combat them?
0: Yes, they, they, they are racist in the sense that um, they make decisions that uh, don't stand up to an equality impact assessment. So people, the one that people often think about are um, immigration decisions or um, there have been the odd case of... Here, here's a good example of um, a racist algorithm. There was a system dev- devised that was, uh, it was attempting to look at fraud and in order to do that it used um, a credit scoring mechanism Uh, They didn't realise that the credit scoring system was highly uh, correlated with where you lived, and they didn't realise that ethnicity was highly correlated with where you lived, so the consequence was that the algorithm was racist. Um, Of course, the the algorithm itself wasn't racist. The design of the algorithm was racist, and one of the modern topics of computer science is indeed how to produce bias-free algorithms, which is... I should perhaps rephrase by saying, can we produce bias-free training data?
1: And um, Do you have any thoughts about where our increasing reliance on hidden algorithms might take us and whether there's a need for the general public to have better understanding of algorithms?
0: Yeah, um, so one of, the, one of the questions you might ask is, um, and this is being asked on a group I'm on at the moment, um, uh, let's say you buy a router for your um, telephone network Well, the router is probably just a dumb bit of hardware. I mean, it's not a Turing machine, but it's something a bit like it. And the algorithm for that router is downloaded from the manufacturer. And it gets updated just as your computer gets updated. So is there ever a point where the system you bought was probably quite highly specified? The system that you've got in front of you five years later certainly isn't the system you specified. It can't be. It's updated itself. Worse, it's probably learnt. So it's got data within it that have been based on its own experience. So you're way off specification. Now, that might be desirable. I mean, after all, you're not complaining that your uh, Microsoft Windows computer is, is, has not updated itself. You're grateful for it. But that is a big, big issue and leads into questions about verifiability and testability. I should probably say something about this when I want to talk about programmes, actually. Um, can you produce a programme that can be verified to... Um, you can be confident it produces the output it should produce. That, that's a, that was an interesting question. Well, it remains an interesting question, but it was studied a lot in the, in the 80s when I was a PhD student.
1: Um, we, we are out of time, but I'm going to give you one final question, which is about the A-level um, algorithm. What was the problem with that?
0: Oh, yeah, so um, in the United Kingdom, the uh, government had to make a decision about um, what to do when exams were cancelled, so the idea was to use an algorithm, and um, they tried uh, the exam board, the, the um, uh, Ofqual, who are the office that look after these qualifications, tried quite a few, but pretty much every exam board put forward a contender, and they were put into what we would call a bake-off, where they're tested against each other and they very carefully wrote up the effects of these algorithms which were to essentially um, severely disadvantage what they perceived to be a small number of students. It was about 10% of the sitters in any exam. Uh, So far so good or so bad depending on what you think. The problem arose was that no one foresaw the consequences of telling 10% of the population more than 10% of the population because everyone does three A-levels and a lot of people do three or four A-levels in this country so of course it's more than 10% so that means maybe 30, maybe a third of the 30%, maybe a third of the people were severely disadvantaged and people that age, you know, they're potential students, I, I deal with them every day, I can tell you they are very knowledgeable about exams they are extremely focused on getting good results and they are very concerned about fairness and justice, so An algorithm clearly didn't measure up on any of those things. The failing, was it the algorithm? No. The failing was politicians who failed to understand what it means to be a young adult
1: very much, Professor Harvey. And thank you all for coming. Um, we hope you enjoyed the lecture. We'll be sending you a link to the video and the transcription in a couple of days' time. Um, in the meantime, please put in your diaries the next uh, lecture in this series, Data, the Past, the Present and the Future, on the 24th of November, um, 6 o'clock. Thanks very much.